Well, I'm sure you know by now, this is the jazz show. My name's Gavin Walker, and we're here every Monday night with some of the best in jazz music for three or so hours. And this evening on the jazz feature, we're paying tribute to one of the great drummers in jazz music by the name of Arthur Taylor Jr., who was born in New York City. I often uh, mention that uh, when he's on, he's recorded so many albums. He was one of the most ubiquitous of all jazz drummers. And, of course, recorded. He was seemed to be on every second album coming out of New York City uh, in the 50s and early 60s. And uh, a most accomplished man. He was of West Indian background, as a lot of musicians were. Um, from his era, Sonny Rollins, Randy Weston, Cecil Payne, Kenny Drew, uh, so many um, great players came from uh, first-generation immigrants from the Caribbean who moved to Harlem to um, better their lives, open businesses, and uh, educate their uh, young folks. And Arthur Taylor was uh, a recipient of that background. He was born on April 6, 1929, and died on my birthday, February 6, 1995. He was 65 years old, passed away of cancer. Arthur Taylor was one of the great jazz drummers, and as I mentioned before, he was on just about <laughs> so many recordings on Prestige, Blue Note, um, and I always called him the great New York drummer, Arthur Taylor. Art Taylor didn't possess the genius of Philly Joe Jones, no, but they were contemporaries. And Arthur Taylor, by saying that, I'm not saying that he was in any way second rate. Arthur Taylor was one of the best-loved drummers in New York and had a very, very distinctive um, way of playing. His ride cymbal was so strong, and his accents, and of course, he laid a carpet for musicians. He became uh, one of John Coltrane's favorite drummers um, because he laid this kind of carpet of rhythm underneath the saxophone and um, just put in the, the right accents as I said, if he didn't possess the magic genius that, say, Philly Joe Jones, his, his uh, peer, um, possessed, that didn't make Arthur Taylor second-rate. He was first-rate. And, of course, that's why he was so welcome on so many recording sessions. He was also a... Uh, all the recording engineers loved to work with A.T., as he was known, uh, because he was easy to record. Some drummers were very difficult. They had to set up the microphones in a certain way to capture the, the proper sound of the drums and so on. Uh, when you recorded with Arthur Taylor, there was no problem. Somehow, um, it was very easy. You put a mic in front of his drums, and that was it. Uh, an overhead mic, I'm talking about, not on individual drums. That's uh, kind of a rock and roll thing. Um, with jazz drums... The microphone was usually overhead. 
despite the fact that Arthur Taylor recorded uh, so many albums and, and played with so many people, Sonny Rollins, Jackie McLean, Kenny Drew, um, all these people, uh, Arthur Taylor recorded very little under his own name. And the album that we're going to be doing the jazz feature with is one of his very few albums under his leadership. And the album is probably the most obscure of the four albums that he recorded in that era under his own name. This one is called Taylor's Tenors, and it's a hand-picked band of his favorite players. And the two saxophone players that we're going to be featuring on this date are none other than Charlie Rouse and Frank Foster. Charlie Rouse is known, of course, because he was Thelonious Monk's tenor saxophonist, as he was at this time. Uh, he had just joined Monk's band. Frank Foster was a little more, not necessarily obscure. Frank Foster was one of the finest. As a matter of fact, I always thought Frank Foster was going to um, make it uh, on the New York scene in the same way as Sonny Rollins did. But Frank Foster joined Count Basie's band. And, of course, he became so busy um, writing arrangements and playing in Basie's band that uh, he was only uh, an infrequent visitor to the um, open New York jazz scene of the 50s and early 60s. And Frank Foster, in, a, in many ways, because of his association with Basie, which, of course, provided him with financial security and steady work and all that kind of stuff, kind of almost put Frank away from the mainstream, and yet he was one of the greatest tenor saxophone players you could ever hear. So those are the two um, tenor players that are on this album, Charlie Rouse and Frank Foster, and you'll hear their, their differing styles on here. And of course, um, on piano is a young man who worked with uh, Arthur Taylor um, for several years off and on. Wonderful pianist, again underrated, from Newark, New Jersey, with classical technique. He was one of the great uh, disciples of um, the style of Bud Powell. I'm talking about Walter Davis, Jr. And uh, he's a piano player not to be reckoned with. This guy such a, a beautiful pianist and uh, so clean in all his execution and, and his, uh, his way of phrasing and so on and so forth. Very distinctive. And, of course, on bass, one of the greatest from Florida, making a name for himself in New York by, when this album was recorded, Sam Jones, of course, who went on to great fame with Cannonball Adderley's band. Interestingly enough, the leader, Arthur Taylor, Charlie Rouse, and Sam Jones were part, three-quarters, of Thelonious Monk's quartet beginning in 1959. And that was one of the finest quartets that Thelonious ever put together. So there was a familiarity between all of these musicians and uh, this is what makes this particular recording so good and, and so unified. So 
This is going to be our jazz feature, and it's, the album is called Taylor's Tenors. Now, Arthur Taylor was born on, as I mentioned before, on this day, April 6th. There's some other birthdays here, and if, hopefully that you'll be able to listen to the rest of the program because we're going to celebrate their birthdays. The other people in, involved in birthdays on April 6th who were important jazz musicians, pianist Randy Weston. We're going to play some of his music, and also baritone saxophonist, composer, arranger, jazz icon, Jerry Mulligan. Randy Weston and Jerry Mulligan and Arthur Taylor were all born on this day, April 6th. So, we're going to commence with our jazz feature. This uh, album was issued on the, the Prestige New Jazz series, and it was recorded in June the 3rd, 1959. And as I mentioned before, the two saxophonists, Taylor's tenors, Charlie Rouse and Frank Foster. On piano, Walter Davis, Jr. On bass, Sam Jones, and of course the drummer, Arthur Taylor. We're going to listen to this album um, the way the musicians recorded it, in the order that they recorded it. So the first tune we're going to hear is a Walter Davis, Jr. composition, a charming piece of music called Cape Millie. That's going to be our opener. The second tune was written by tenor saxophonist Charlie Rouse, and it's called Little Chico. And the third tune was written by a very dear friend and someone he grew up with in Harlem, um, a dear friend of Arthur Taylor's, Jackie McLean. And he wrote this tune, tune number three, dedicated to the new man who was running Cuba. <laughs> the tune is called Fidel. And it was written by Jackie McLean in honor of Fidel Castro. All right. Tune number four is the Thelonious Monk composition. And of course, they're going to play some Monk compositions, seeing as th uh, three of the guys in the band were working with Monk at the time. So uh, tune number four is Monk's great tune based on George Gershwin's I Got Rhythm. Monk called it Rhythmining. Tune number five is another Monk composition based on the blues. And of course... It's called Straight, No Chaser. And the final tune was written by the leader himself, Arthur Taylor. It's called Dacor. So these six tunes make up the album Taylor's Tenors, and that's going to be our jazz feature this evening. And we commence with Walter Davis's composition, Cape Millie. So sit back and enjoy the music this evening. Taylor's Tenors.
All right, our jazz feature this evening, Taylor's Tenors, Arthur Taylor, one of the great, as I always say, New York jazz drummers. And uh, Mr. Taylor was born on this day in 1929 in New York City and died on February 6th, 1995. He was 65 years old and uh, died, unfortunately, of cancer. Arthur Taylor was uh, an extremely accomplished person. He, um, of course, recorded, as I mentioned before, at the preamble, uh, recorded, he was just about on every jazz record uh, coming out of New York City on, on labels like Prestige, uh, Blue Note, and to a lesser extent on Riverside Records. He was just uh, the first call jazz drummer, and... Um, A.T., as he was affectionately known, is also um, a favorite of a very good friend of mine who has been to Vancouver many times and a great drummer himself, Joe Farnsworth. And um, in Arthur Taylor's latter days, Joe was able to study and uh, take a lot of knowledge from uh, Arthur Taylor. Now, Mr. Taylor... Um, performed with everybody until the early 60s. And um, because he was a, a very, as most musicians are, they're aware of politics, they're aware of uh, so many things, uh, he felt that jazz was being uh, disrespected in the United States and uh, not treated um, with proper um, honor and, and that sort of thing. And... Uh, was very discouraged by that. He was also discouraged by the racial scene, which uh, continued and continues to this day. Uh, Arthur, of course, being uh, a black American. Uh, and he decided to pack bags and baggage and say bye-bye and head for Europe to a wonderful, um, almost well over 20 years living in Europe, performing all over the place, and also not facing the kind of uh, stigmas that he would have faced in America, and also some financial security. But also, he became an author. He wrote one of the very best books on jazz, called Notes and Tones. And what it is, what this book is, and I recommend it to anybody who's remotely interested in jazz music, are intimate interviews with his... Uh, peers, people like Miles Davis, people like Ornette Coleman, people like Philly Joe Jones, um, all kinds of people in this book are interviewed by Arthur Taylor, and of course he writes down what they what they talk about, and that's that's the content of the book, but it gives you a real inside view on uh, on jazz music because these the all of these people opened up because Arthur Taylor was one of their compatriots one of their peers and uh, it's a, a great book and as i said i recommend it to anybody it's called notes and tones arthur taylor arthur uh returned to the united states um to deal with his uh aging mom um in new york uh who was in failing health and uh, while he was here um, doing that, he also formed a band called Taylor's Whalers and uh, used his sort of elder status to uh, group 
together a whole bunch of wonderful young musicians. They recorded a couple of albums, and uh, then in 1995, he was uh, stricken with the cancer that uh, he succumbed to, and uh, Arthur passed away, as I said, uh, at age 65, February 6th, 1995. But we're celebrating, uh, and we did celebrate his birthday this evening. I should also mention that there's another birthday to celebrate, besides the people I mentioned earlier, Randy West and Jerry Mulligan, the birthday of Charlie Rouse, who we listened to extensively on this record. And uh, he was born today as well. And he passed away in 1988 in a hospital in Seattle, Washington, died of the same ailment uh, as Arthur Taylor. And he is missed. So... Uh, that uh, is the context of, uh, of this album and our feature uh, this evening. The album is called Taylor's Whalers, and it was the second album that he did for the Prestige label. Arthur, in those days, in the 50s and 60s, only recorded, actually it was three albums. Uh, the first one was called the original Taylor's Whalers, which included uh, Rouse, Jackie McLean, uh, and various other people. This album that we listened to this evening called Taylor's Tenors, and then another album uh, later on that he recorded for Blue Note called A.T.'s Delight. That's beautiful, too. We're going to do a jazz feature on that album sometime in the future. Getting back to this recording, we heard Charlie Rouse on tenor saxophone and the great and, I think, often overlooked Frank Foster, who we're going to hear a little more of in another context um, very soon. Frank Foster on tenor saxophone. So Charlie Rouse and Frank Foster, two of um, A.T.'s favorites. On piano, the wonderful Walter Davis Jr. from Newark, New Jersey. Classically trained, what a superb pianist and, and a delightful composer. And of course on bass, anchoring the whole band was the great Sam Jones. And as I mentioned before, uh, Arthur Taylor, Charlie Rouse, and Sam Jones were three-quarters of Thelonious Monk's quartet at this time. So um, I think this was the reason why they included uh, two of the most famous Monk compositions on this recording date. The pieces of music we heard in the order of recording, we opened with Walter Davis's um, very charming composition called Cape Millie. And then we move to an up-tempo thing by Charlie Rouse called Little Chico. Um, two number three was written by another cohort of Art Taylor and someone he, he grew up with uh, in Harlem, uh, Jackie McLean. He wrote this tune called Fidel. And, of course, it was dedicated to uh, Senor Castro. And um, two number four, of course, um, was a Thelonious Monk composition, Rhythmining. Two number five was the very well-known monk composition based on the blues and played in the proper key of B-flat, straight no chaser. And the final tune was um, put together by Arthur Taylor himself and called Dacor. So that was our jazz feature this evening, Taylor's Tenor. So I certainly hope you enjoyed that. We're going to um, carry on a little bit later on with... Um, a session by Thelonious Monk, which features Frank Foster. 
And uh, I'll get into that in a moment, but I'd just like to tell you that you are listening to CITR FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. This is The Jazz Show. My name's Gavin Walker. And we're going to, um, before we get a chance to hear Monk, I would like to play you something which is uh, quite delightful. And I was reminded of its charm um, a couple of nights ago because I heard this piece of music on the radio. And it's a perfect introduction to Thelonious Monk. Uh, however, the, um, when I heard it on Sirius Radio, they didn't play the uh, introduction, which is just as entertaining as the piece of music. This is a piece of music written by pianist Jimmy Rawls. And... The vocalist on here is someone we'll uh, listen to a few tunes a little later on in the show. One of my favorite vocalists is Carmen McRae. This was recorded at the um, Great American uh, Music Hall in San Francisco with uh, Carmen's band at the time featuring Joe Pass on guitar, the aforementioned Jimmy Rawls on piano, the composer of this piece, Chuck DeMonico on bass, and uh, Chuck Flores on drums. But we're going to listen to Carmen's introduction to the piece, which to me is as entertaining as the piece itself. The piece was written by Jimmy Rawls, and it's a perfect introduction to the music of Thelonious Monk, because we're going to hear Carmen's introduction to the ballad of Thelonious Monk. So sit back and enjoy this. It's very entertaining. The next song is so really completely away from this one I just sung for you, the last one, that uh, it's hard to believe that this cat is really that much of a genius. And he is to me. I love him dearly because we are very dear friends and we love each other very much. But I have to sort of cop out a little bit and tell you about this next song, y'all. Now, Jimmy Rose has written a song about one of our innovators of progressive jazz. Another pianist, in fact. And his name is Thelonious Monk. Now, I gather when you say that that uh, you know who I'm speaking of. Now, for the people who are going to buy this record... (laughs) which better be in the millions I would like to explain about Thelonious Monk just in case they're not aware this is a gentleman who uh, if you saw him just sitting you know anywhere or walking down the street the last thing you would think of him as being is a uh, piano player of uh, the worth that he is because he doesn't look like it you know what I mean He's a beautiful-looking cat with a beard and, a, and sort of very stern-looking. But uh, with all that, he never forgets to wear a hat. Could be a yarmulke with a dashiki on. He don't care. He's going to have something on top of his head. Now, right? Now, for those of you who have heard Monk play, it's kind of hard to picture anybody writing a song about Thelonious that's in a country and western vein. Now, is it? Now, you see, 
That's where everything just throws me for a loop because I say to myself, if Thelonious Monk were ever reincarnated 133 times, he ain't never coming back here as no cowboy. You know what I mean? Now, anybody that can think up a country and western song about Thelonious cannot be wrapped too tight. Let's face it. He ain't coming up after me, is he? No. But we love him. And this song is built to make you laugh, and we hope you'll enjoy it. And it's called The Ballad... What else? Of Thelonious Monk. that intro. Don't it get you right here? I used to think cowboy music was the only thing there was. Then I heard Thelonious Monk. The place was filled to the rafters with musicians and the fuzz. They all love Thelonious Monk. I didn't know what he was playing but the dog next door kept baying and the waitress was humming along and i forgot about gene Autry and the things he taught me when i heard Took up bebop and forgot about the cows. Wouldn't feed my horse any hay. That horse, he knew I had them records, and he hung around the house. Ears a cocked just to hear the monk play. He threw me clear to Santa Monica, or when he heard my.
Carmen McRae, one of the all-time great personalities and great singers in uh, jazz music. Actually, I erroneously said it was recorded at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. This was recorded at Dante's, another very fine club that I spent some time at in Los Angeles. And it featured Carmen's uh, regular working band at the time with the great Joe Pass on guitar, uh, Chuck DeMonico on bass, Chuck Flores on drums, and of course the composer of this uh, uh, insane piece of music, <laughs> Jimmy Rolls on piano, the late great Jimmy Rolls, and of course Carmen uh, doing everything, including her very entertaining uh, introduction to this piece of music as well. We'll hear some more songs by Carmen a little later on in the show, because uh, I do love her singing. But we're going to turn our attention now to the very first recording that I ever bought by Thelonious Monk. I had, um, this goes back um, a number of years ago. I was the uh, youngest member in, uh, in Montreal of the Eminon Jazz Society. And I was, uh, I just turned 13 years old. And, of course, all my other compatriots in the society were in their early 20s. So, basically, they were all grown men. I was just a little kid. But uh, I was treated um, with uh, a certain amount of respect and equality because uh, they liked the idea that I was, uh, I was so interested in, in jazz music. And I was evolving as well in my tastes at that time in jazz. And I was um, doing a lot of listening to... Um, people like uh, Sonny Rollins and Miles Davis and, and so on and so forth. And I had heard um, Monk uh, occasionally on the radio at the time, but uh, I wasn't all that familiar with Monk. And I remember telling um, one of my mentors was a gentleman named Carlton Baird. And um, uh, Carlton um, said to me, he said, uh, he said, are you hip to Monk, man? And I said, well, he's, he's kind of interesting, isn't he? Um, that's what I've heard. You know, and Carlton looked at me kind of quizzically and said, uh, interesting. Well, that's an interesting observation. He said, I think Monk is a little more than interesting. Uh, anyway, um, we happened to be, uh, we had a meeting at the Eminon Jazz Society down on Mountain Street, which was in the basement of a radio station. And... Uh, the meeting was over, and uh, nothing much more was happening. We all took off, a whole bunch of us, to the um, down St. Catherine Street in Montreal to the International Music Store. And, of course, um, the, the staff of the International Music Store, of course, realized that all the jazzers were coming in, and we were going to dominate the listening booths. We're going to grab albums and spend hours in there and, of course, uh, maybe buy some stuff as well. <laughs> uh, so they kind of looked at us uh, a little askance. But um, back in those days, of course, these, these record stores, most of them had listening booths where you, could, you simply took the records off the uh, shelves, um, showed them to the clerk, and then you took a, them into a listening booth where you could listen and audition them. And if you liked them, you bought them. And if you didn't, you put them back. 
So that was the way it was back in those days. So we all grabbed a bunch of records and headed off into the listening. But we all crowded into one of these little booths with a that had a little record player, and uh, and put on these records. And of course, this session was the one that I listened to, and it was a monk thing. So um, I looked at it. it was a prestige record, and um, I said, "Yeah, let's 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 listen to this." And I fell in love with it instantly. And this was my real introduction to Monk's music, was this 10-inch uh, album, which came out on Prestige Records. And uh, w we're going to listen to it in a few seconds. But uh, um, it impressed me so much because the music was so clear and, and, and lucid. And Carlton was there beside me. He was enjoying it, too, because he hadn't heard it either. And he said, well, what do you think of that? And I said, well, uh, I should kind of reiterate. I said, this is a lot more than interesting, man. I said, this, this stuff swings. And uh, I love it. It's great. And um, I ended up, I didn't have enough money in my pocket to actually buy the album, which was, I think it was three ninety-five dollars uh, at the time. And uh, I, Carlton loaned me a dollar to make the... Because I said, I want this album. And he said, he said, you'll dig it. He said, you'll be listening to this for a long time, brother. And <laughs> so um, he, he actually loaned me a, a dollar to, uh, to, uh, so I could cover the cost of the album. And I took it home, and I, I treasured the album. I still have the original copy of the album uh, on a 10-inch prestige record. And it's a Thelonious Monk session, and it was during his rather um, unhappy period with Prestige Records. Monk, of course, had recorded a lot of his significant stuff for Blue Note Records. Alfred Lyon was one of his big backers. But Alfred never held Monk to a contract. So there wasn't a lot of money, and the records didn't sell. And Monk um, was, in 1952, signed a contract with Prestige Records, which gave him a little bit more security. Um, uh, he, would get, uh, he was guaranteed recording dates and so on and so forth. But actually, it wasn't a very happy alliance because Monk's records did not sell. So uh, even this record, I remember reading the review. After I bought the record, I read the review, and it was kind of uh, very kind of off-putting. They just said, well, there's not too much happening. There's one good tune on here. Uh, the rest is not much going on here, and, and, and it was kind of very dismissive. So, and, of course, in 1955... Um, Orrin Keepnews bought out Monk's contract from Prestige Records, and he began recording for Riverside and then never looked back after that because he rose to fame. But during the, his Prestige period, he was, he was scuffling, and the records weren't selling. Uh, the critics, the reviewers were kind of dumping on them, and uh, there wasn't much happening. But this particular date is one of the best of all the Prestige dates, and uh, I think my 13-year-old assessment of this date was, was quite accurate. I, I remember saying when we were listening, I said, wow, the band sounds so well rehearsed, and uh, everything's tight, and, and uh, the sound is so good. 
What I didn't know, of course, was that uh, this was one of the early recordings done in Rudy Van Gelder's uh, studio for Prestige. They had switched over, and of course the sound quality of Prestige records was uh, much better when they began recording with uh, Rudy Van Gelder. So all of these things kind of factored into it, and the band is well rehearsed. I found out later, um, just uh, over the years, uh, I had a um, I was friends with Frank Foster, who we heard the other saxophone player on our jazz feature album, and and uh, Frank told me that he couldn't remember um, why he was hired for this particular record date. He said, "I don't know how I got into it," and he uh, he said, "I think the trumpet player uh, got me uh, involved with this," and I said, "You know." I found out later, and I said to Frank, I said, well, if you can't remember, I said, I think maybe I can tell you. I said, I think uh, Monk's friend Alma Hope recommended you. And Frank's eyes lit up, and he said, you know, I think you're damn right. He said, how did you know that? And I said, well, it's just a really good guess, because I know you recorded with Alma Hope, and Alma and Monk were were tight like brothers. So, you know, Frank uh, laughed, and he said, you know, he said, I think, I think he said, I think you are right. He said, I think that's how I got on the date. He said, but I do remember that 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 we rehearsed before we went into the studio, uh, just at Monk's house, just the horn players, not not the rhythm section, just just Ray Copeland, the the, the trumpet player, and myself. We went over the tunes uh, for hours, uh, and then we went into the recording studio the next day. And I said, well, that's. The reason why this band sounds so tight, it's really good. He said, because it wasn't a working band. It was really put together just for the record date. Anyway, so we'll get to the music. Frank Foster on tenor saxophone once again. Uh, This was his only recorded appearance uh, with Monk. Um, Monk tried to, later on, tried to get Frank... uh, involved with his quartet, but Frank was committed to Count Basie's band and certainly wasn't going to join Thelonious Monk. So um, this is the only time they ever recorded together, and this was in May of 1954. So we hear Frank Foster on tenor and um, Monk's favorite trumpet player of those years, Ray Copeland. Monk liked brassy trumpet players, and he liked trumpet players to sound like trumpet players and and strong and brassy. Ray Copeland was right up Monk's alley. So Ray Copeland and Frank Foster make a beautiful pair on this album. And the rhythm section, of course, was was Monk's favorites. Percy Heath on bass and Monk's closest friend on drums, Art Blakey. So you can't get any better than that. And this was a very fine recording session. Frank also told me that this was one of the smoothest recordings that he ever made. He said, like, it was, everyone was so cooperative. Uh, the tunes went basically down without um, a lot of fuss, a lot of false starts, a lot of this, that, and the other thing, which can sometimes happen on monk dates. He said it was extremely smooth. And uh, he said, one of the smoothest record dates I was ever on. So, we'll get to the music. Uh, We're going to hear three Monk compositions and his arrangement on a great old standard. We open with, uh, the opening track is called We See. 
It's a monk composition, of course. Uh, tune number two is my favorite track of the whole uh, album. It's called Locomotive. I, I'm a huge fan of steam engines and trains and so on. And Monk wrote a tune called Locomotive. You have to love it. Tune number three is the standard. And it was a Monk arrangement, and it's called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Very famous old standard. And the final tune is a Monk composition uh, based on the uh, chord progressions of Lady Be Good. Monk called it Hackensack, which, of course, is a city in New Jersey. So these four tunes make up the record date. And I uh, hope you enjoy this uh, session with Mr. Monk at one of his finest prestige recording sessions. Here we go. We see.
Ah, yes. <laughs> My first encounter with Thelonious Monk was, uh, as I mentioned before, this particular album. And, of course, I bought it, took it home, and uh, treasured it forever. And, of course, looking back and in retrospect, this was uh, uh, some of Monk's, um, one of Monk's happiest sessions when he was involved with uh, Prestige Records in the 50s, which was not a particularly happy time for Monk. Um, there were work problems, um, et cetera, et cetera, and a general lack of interest by just about everybody. Uh, except certain people in the jazz community. So Monk was uh, <laughs> pretty much on his own at the time, and he wasn't getting much support from the record company because his records weren't selling at all. And uh, they were uh, dismissed by the reviewers who could be influential uh, onto what you buy and what you don't buy and this sort of thing. But this particular session um, is a good one. And I think it's one of uh, Monk's um, happier moments um, in being involved with the, this particular record label before his involvement with uh, Oren Keep News. And the band sounded so good. Um, obviously tight, well rehearsed, and um, uh, as Frank Foster told me um, many years ago, this was one of the smoothest sessions he had ever played on. He said, he said this was even smoother than Count Basie's uh, recording sessions, you know, because we had stops and starts and arguments and this and that and the other thing. He said, nothing like that went down on this session. He said, we just played the music and, and it was cool. It, it just all came off. And he said, it was so smooth. He said, I didn't expect that to happen, and, but it did. And, um, this is the result. So we heard Frank Foster, of course, on tenor saxophone, one of Monk's favorites, and along with Ray Copeland on trumpet, who was at the time Monk's uh, favorite trumpeter. And uh, Ray Copeland and Frank Foster obviously getting a nice sound together. And of course, uh, two guys in the rhythm section that uh, were Monk's first call people, Percy Heath on bass, and of course Monk's best friend, one of his best friends, Art Blakey on drums. And of course, Mr. Monk in glowing form on piano. We heard uh, three Monk compositions and one arrangement by Thelonious Monk. The first two pe uh, pieces of music we heard were Monk compositions. The first one was called We See. The second one was called Locomotive, which is uh, my favorite track of the album. And the third one featured, uh, it was basically a feature for Monk on piano to explore the um, chord progressions of an old standard called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. And he wrote the, the horn arrangements uh, around that. And the final tune was uh, another one of Monk's uh, staples that uh, came into his regular repertoire, a tune called Hackensack. So those four tunes made up this 10-inch uh, record. And 10-inch records were mostly uh, about 22 to 25 minutes long, uh, talking about side A and side B together. And uh, that was what constituted this record day. One of the early recordings in Rudy Van Gelder's uh, great uh, studios, and uh, this was recorded in May of 1954. Thelonious Sphere Monk and company. All right, you are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9, 
on your computer, www.citr.ca. We're going to get into some music by another birthday person at this time, and that's the redoubtable composer and one of the most distinctive voices of the baritone saxophone, none other than Jerry Mulligan, who was born on this day, April 6th. But first, we have this to offer you. Well, the weather's always a, a controversy here in Vancouver, but we're looking forward to some really nice weather this week, at least up to Friday. So uh, enjoy it while you can, and uh, try and get out in the daytime and uh, and do your stuff. And if you're working in the daytime, just spend your lunch hours outside. Uh, or if you're going to school, same thing. Anyway, tonight is partly cloudy with a very, very slight chance of a light shower um, you on the outskirts of town with uh, a low of four, and then tomorrow is going to be mainly sunny with uh, a low of four and a high of 13. The outlook for Wednesday and Thursday one word, and the best word sunny and warm, uh, with a low of between four and six, and highs between 14 and 18. Mm-hmm. Then on uh, Friday. A bit of a downturn, cloudy with a 60% chance of a shower with a low of 6 and a high of 13. And on Saturday, cloudy again with a 60% chance of a shower with a low of 7, high of 12. And on Sunday, mm, kind of a mixed bag, a low of um, a low of 5 and a high of 12 on Sunday, cloudy with a 40% chance of a shower. So that might be a relatively pleasant day. 40% chance of a shower isn't too much. Anyway, that's the, uh, that's the forecast for the week. Jerry Mulligan. Of course, Mr. Mulligan was part of jazz music uh, from the early 40s. He was born in Philadelphia. And uh, Jerry Mulligan be- began um, in a very young age playing the tenor saxophone, which is his first instrument, and uh, writing arrangements. This was his forte, and um, he... Uh, wrote arrangements for some some of the great big bands just toward the end of the big band era, and a couple of his tunes became quite famous. Um, one of them called "Disc Jockey Jump," uh, written for the Gene Krupa Orchestra, was right up there on the hit parade and and a very catchy tune and that sort of thing. So Mulligan, in his early days, um, definitely proved himself. Uh, He began playing the big baritone saxophone and fell in love with the sound of that instrument and, of course, became one of the great voices of the baritone saxophone. That became his main instrument. And uh, Mr. Mulligan was also a very, very accomplished pianist as well. So um, he 
entered the late 40s or uh, entered the late 40s, entered the early 50s, um, he was got involved with uh, Miles Davis and his Birth of the Cool Band and wrote some uh, great arrangements for that band and was also leading his own ensembles and decided um, sometime in the early 50s to, uh, uh, his, uh, with his girlfriend to um, hitchhike pack everything, sell everything, take his berry on his back and a few other belongings, and um, him and his girlfriend hit the road, hitchhiked across the United States and ended up in Los Angeles, where Mulligan began um, a different career. He wanted to get out of New York City and a lot of the sort of negative things that were happening to him and see the West Coast uh, as a lot of people from the East wanted to do, and Los Angeles, of course, was booming at the time, and uh, Mulligan ended up there and formed his legendary quartet with Chet Baker, and um, this, and of course, they scored. This was a pianoless group, baritone, saxophone, trumpet, bass, and drums, and somehow it hit, and, and of course, um, Mulligan became one of the most, uh, uh, that band became one of the most, along with the Dave Brubeck Quartet, one of the most important bands on the West Coast. And Mulligan found a home uh, in a club, a small club, a converted house in Los Angeles called The Hague, and that's where the quartet made its uh, fame. Now, we're going to hear some Jerry Mulligan. This is... Um, he also had some other opportunities, and we're going to listen to something from this period, but not by the quartet, but by a larger group. Uh, and we're going to hear an example of Jerry Mulligan's writing and playing for a larger band, and uh, done around the same time with all musicians that were based in Los Angeles. And this was his ten-tet and this was recorded in 1953 in January. And um, this is a, a band that a lot of people sort of uh, overlook when they're thinking about Jerry Mulligan. They think of his small bands. But um, this is a great-sounding uh, group. And uh, these are all Mulligan compositions. The, the people involved here, uh, there are two trumpeters, Chet Baker um, and Pete Condoli. Uh, on trumpets, Bob Nevelson on valve trombone, and a French horn in here, John Grass on French horn, Ray Siegel on tuba, Bud Shank on alto saxophone, and another baritone saxophone, uh, aside from Jerry's, to fill in the ensemble, Don Davidson on baritone saxophone, no piano, Joe Mondragon on bass, and Chico Hamilton on drums. So this was almost um, an extension of the uh, concept of the quartet, but with more horns. That's basically what it is. And we're going to hear four tunes uh, from this uh, session recorded in Los Angeles. First one is my favorite track. It's a beautiful composition. It's called simply A Ballad, written by Jerry Mulligan. Then the next tune is called Westwood Walk. And then uh, one of Mulligan's, or and, and the final two tunes are two of his most famous compositions, Walkin' Shoes, and the final tune is called Rocker. Uh, 
which he recorded uh, with the birth of the Cool Band, as a matter of fact, with Miles Davis. So this is a, a kind of an updated version of that tune. So a ballad, Westwood Walk, Walkin' Shoes, and Rocker. Mr. Jerry Mulligan, born on this day in Philadelphia, 
first part of our tribute to Gerald Joseph Mulligan. And uh, I aired uh, in a couple of spots. Actually, he was born in New York, in Queens, um, and was born April 6th, 1927, not 25. He, and he died January 20th, 1996. He was 68 years old after a minor operation, and uh, he succumbed to whatever. Mulligan uh, formed this uh, tentet, actually for recording purposes, and of course it, it gave um, him a chance to write for more horns and, and uh, fill out what, uh, what the quartet had begun. And um, so we have these stellar tracks, and I did have the order wrong uh, of the tunes uh, when I announced them. So we open with, uh, these are all Mulligan compositions. We open with uh, the up-tempo Westwood Walk, then the beautiful uh, tune called simply A Ballad. And uh, that was tune number two. And then Walkin' Shoes and finally Rocker. And uh, the Tentet was uh, made up of um, Los Angeles-based musicians, as I mentioned before. The only other soloist on here, aside from Jerry Mulligan on baritone saxophone, was trumpeter Chet Baker. And uh, all of these were recorded January 29th, 1953, in Los Angeles. Interestingly enough, uh, while Mulligan was uh, uh, gaining fame, of course, with his quartet with Baker and recording opportunities and so on, um, he was dabbling in, uh, in drugs. And uh, sad to say, uh, he wasn't a, a hardcore junkie or anything, but... Uh, a young man just wanting to experiment and uh, and so on and so forth. So many musicians were doing that in that era, and uh, Mulligan fell into that, and uh, unfortunately got himself arrested. Um, the the uh, the police were uh, because Mulligan was a, a, a bit of a minor celebrity in Los Angeles. He was being watched, and the L.A. police, of course, were uh, the LAPD were a pretty nasty bunch. <laughs> I don't think much has changed really down there, but uh, um, in terms of looking for drugs and this sort of thing, and uh, jazz musicians were suspect, and uh, Mulligan got caught and uh, was uh, sentenced to uh, a short prison sentence. And so that effectively ended the quartet for a little while. And Chet Baker, of course, uh, carried on and formed his own group and then carried on with his own career. At the time, Chet wasn't uh, messing around with drugs, but that, that came later, and of course he became notorious. Um, however, uh, when Mulligan was, uh, was released and never went back to uh, that lifestyle again, he was completely finished with it, realized his mistake, and uh, realized it would uh, ruin any future that he had. So that was the end of his drug episode. Um, and he attempted to uh, contact Baker and, and get the quartet back together again, but it didn't happen because Baker was already on his way with his own band and uh, wasn't interested. So that was the end of that. But Mulligan still had the quartet um, concept in mind, and he formed a new quartet with valve trombonist Bob Brookmeyer. And um, the next thing you know was that uh, they were booked on a European tour. 
And the quartet with Brookmire was especially appealing because uh, the valve trombone and the baritone saxophone, I think, are a much more, um, much better blend than trumpet and baritone saxophone. Somehow they, they just work better. And, of course, uh, on bass was one of the greatest, Red Mitchell. And on drums, a wonderful, um, tasteful player from Detroit by the name of Frank Izola. And so this was a great quartet. And um, we're very fortunate to have these recordings done uh, while they were in Europe, recorded in Paris at the Cell Playel. And these were recorded in June of 1954. We're going to hear the first set that they played um, at their concert at the Sal Playel. Uh, we're going to open with Bernie's tune, and then Mulligan is going to introduce the musicians and say hello to the audience. Then we're going to go into another version of Walkin' Shoes, and then a ballad, uh, The Nearness of You, great standard by Hoagie Carmichael, and an original by Jerry Mulligan called Motel, and then a little taste of Mulligan's theme song called Utter Chaos. So here then, Jerry Mulligan, Bob Brookmeyer on baritone saxophone and valve trombone, respectively, Red Mitchell on bass, and Frank Azola on drums, and we open with Bernie's tune, recorded at the Salle Playal in Paris. Thank you. 
For a very enthusiastic French audience at the Salle Playel in Paris in June of 1954. That was the second edition of the Jerry Mulligan Quartet with Mr. Mulligan on baritone saxophone, Bob Brookmeyer on valve trombone, Red Mitchell on bass, and Frank Isola on drums. And we heard four tunes. Uh, beginning with uh, Bernie Miller's great tune, <laughs> the only thing he ever wrote called Bernie's Tune. What else? And then uh, Jerry introduced the musicians and went into his own composition called Walkin' Shoes. And then we heard the uh, beautiful Hoagy Carmichael ballad, The Nearness of You. And uh, then an up-tempo Mulligan original called Motel. And a little short burst of Jerry Mulligan's theme song, Utter Chaos. And uh, to uh, tumultuous applause by the uh, folks in Paris who had never heard Jerry Mulligan before live. So uh, they were very, very pleased. So happy birthday, Mr. Mulligan. And I'm sure you're playing in the big band in the sky with uh, Miles and all those people up there, wherever, wherever the big band is. And um, Jerry Mulligan, 
one of the uh, iconic musicians in jazz and one of the great voices of the baritone saxophone and wonderful composer, arranger, and, um, and character. Jerry Mulligan uh, didn't suffer fools gladly. He, uh, especially uh, people that thought that they knew about music and would uh, talk to him, and sometimes Mulligan <laughs> could be very, very dismissive if he figured out that you didn't know anything and thought that you did. Um, <laughs> uh, and many an interviewer, uh, uh, interviewer and uh, uh, person uh, was caught short or um, some disc jockey talking to Mulligan. He would uh, quickly dispose of you very, very fast. But he was uh, a great um, jazz musician, a great uh, jazz icon, and somebody who changed the music as we hear it today, Jerry Mulligan. The next birthday tribute is a gentleman that uh, is still alive. He's 89 today. Pianist Randy Weston. Randy was one of the many, many New York musicians of West Indian background. As a matter of fact, his dad ran a restaurant, and uh, Randy learned how to cook um, Caribbean food in that restaurant and, and did that. And, of course, there was a piano in the restaurant. Uh, Randy began messing around with the piano and, of course, became accomplished on that instrument and became one of the great um, inspirational band leaders in jazz music, Randy Weston. And, of course, he is very, very capable of, of doing... Um, I remember when he came here and played uh, as part of uh, one of the early Vancouver Jazz Festival performances, and it was... Uh, in that um, outdoor uh, thing down by uh, down by BC Place that they had, there was kind of an outdoor auditorium, and um, Randy played a solo piano concert and just knocked everybody out. Very very memorable event. Um, Any time Randy plays is always memorable, and of course he has uh, returned to Vancouver a couple of times and uh, brought uh, various musicians. Randy is uh, very Afrocentric. He spent uh, many years in uh, living in Africa, and um, his music, of course, reflects all those kind of influences. Interestingly enough, I was at this performance that we're going to listen to. Um, this was recorded at the Monterey Jazz Festival, and this is my one and only time I met with one of my idols, the great tenor saxophonist Booker Irvin. And uh, I think I've talked about this a few times, so I'll dispense with any conversation about that. But this is, um, as a matter of fact, the, the afternoon of this concert, um, I had spent the whole afternoon with, uh, with, with Booker Irvin talking and, and hanging out and, uh, and so on and so forth. And then he had to go and get changed and... Uh, get ready for this evening's concert. And, uh, of course, he's on stage with this band put together by the great pianist Randy Weston. Monterey, 1966, September 18th. Booker Irvin on tenor saxophone. Ray Copeland, who we heard with earlier with Thelonious Monk playing trumpet and flugelhorn. Cecil Payne on baritone saxophone. Both Ray and, and Cecil uh, were from the same West Indian background uh, as Randy Weston. And um, 
they were both raised, of course, uh, and, and born in New York City. On base, Bill Wood, sometimes known as Vishnu Wood. On drums, a wonderful drummer, Lenny McBrown. And on conga drums, a gentleman um, who was known as Big Black. And uh, his real name was Larry Roy, but he never used that. So Big Black on, on congas. And we're going to hear a couple of tunes. We'll, we'll hear the introduction by Jimmy Lyons, uh, who was at the time still alive, and he was one of the uh, uh, mainstays and, um, of the Monterey Jazz Festival and one of the, uh, the chief movers and shakers, got that whole festival going. And uh, we'll, we'll go into a tune called the Berkshire Blues, and then we're going to go into a lengthy version of uh, one of Randy Weston's masterpieces, The African Cookbook. So here then, recorded at the Monterey Jazz Festival, September 18th, 1966, we take you back. And we begin with the voice of Jimmy Lyons, introducing Randy Weston. I feel that uh, right now would be an extremely good time to talk about somebody else's on our show tonight. And it's a group that I've been very anxious to hear because I've heard their records and I've known the gentleman in charge of the group for a long time and I've always admired his music. And so I've been waiting for some time to make this all possible and I'm delighted we can make it possible for you tonight. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you now Mr. Randy Weston, the sextet and guest star Booker Urban on center saxophone. Randy Weston, ladies and gentlemen. Randy, this is the call, Randy Weston, and here he is, your leader. We have another gentleman with Randy's group.
Greg Copeland. Greg Copeland, Berkshire Blues. Thank you very much. We have in Cecil Payne, baritone saxophone, I think one of the finest on this instrument. I'd like to feature him on a very special thing we wrote for him. We dedicated this tune to the wonderful and very talented, the genius of Billy Strayhorn. We call this Blues for Strayhorn.
We would uh, thank you very much. We'd like to close our set by playing for you the African cookbook.
Our jazz drummer, Lenny Mac Brown. Our bassist, Bill Wood. Baritone saxophone, Cecil Payne. Ray Copeland, trumpet and flugelhorn. Our guest artist, Booker Urban. Thank you, thank you very much, thank you. And Randy Weston in a beautiful, beautiful set. Randy, thanks a million. Recorded at the Monterey Jazz Festival, September 18th, 1966. I was very happy to be in the audience that evening to listen to the great Randy Weston. And, of course, celebrating his 89th birthday today, or at least April 6th. It's a little past midnight now, but uh, that's, that's cool. And uh, that was our tribute to Randy Weston. This was his sextet. We heard uh, the voice of Jimmy Lyons introducing uh, uh, the, whole, the whole band, and then we moved to uh, a piece of music by Randy called Berkshire Blues, and that featured Ray Copeland on uh, trumpet. Then we moved to a Cecil Payne feature. It was called Blues for Strayhorn, and we ended with a very lengthy version of uh, Randy's, uh, one of his anthems called African Cookbook. And the people involved, Ray Copeland on trumpet and flugelhorn, Cecil Payne, baritone saxophone, Randy Weston on piano, Bill Wood on bass, Lenny McBrown on drums, Big Black on congas, and a past uh, member of this band who was uh, now billed as the guest star tenor saxophonist Booker Irvin. Randy Weston and his sextet, Monterey, 1966. Well, that's almost wraps it up this evening. I'd like to play one more thing. This is a gentleman that will be visiting Vancouver this year at this year's jazz festival. And I'm talking about the guru of South African jazz, Abdullah Ibrahim. He'll be coming with uh, a, a group, and uh, I quite imagine uh, his performance will be hypnotic, beautiful, and very, very moving. We're going to close with uh, Abdullah on piano and uh, the late Johnny Jani on bass, both uh, gentlemen from South Africa. This is a composition called Saud, and this is Abdullah Ibrahim.
pianist Abdullah Ibrahim and Johnny Diani on bass. And we heard this composition by Abdullah entitled Saud. Closing another edition of The Jazz Show this evening. We hope that uh, you enjoyed most of the music this evening and uh, will join us in a week's time because we'll be back on CITR. My name is Gavin Walker, and this has been the, I guess the, uh, we can call it the Easter Monday edition of The Jazz Show. Once again, thank you very much for being out there. And, of course, we're on radio station CITR 101.9 on your dial. And, of course, uh, on your computer, www.citr.ca. And that is uh, about it for uh, another week of jazz. And we'll return next week, same time, same station. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkameenam-speaking Musqueam people. Do-ba-dee-oo